Hello. Welcome to this episode of Herdmates podcast. And for this episode, I'm really pleased to be joined by Dr. Brett Schur, who is a board certified cardiologist and lipidologist, which he may have to explain. And you're still practicing in San Diego, is that correct? Yes, Peter, it is. I have a, a telemedicine practice. So I'm based in San Diego, but I have a telemedicine practice. And then I'm the medical director at dietdoctor.com as well. So I get to help people individually and then help people on a global scale uh, through Diet Doctor. As well as being a podcaster for several years. So he's agreed to... <laughs> yes, and we get to flip the tables because I already had you on the Diet Doctor podcast and now we get to switch roles. You're the interviewer and I'm the interviewee. So I like it. Nice to switch only, it up. It's only fair. Thank you. Um, so a couple things have already gone by that we should probably talk about. Um, a cardiologist, what are they? Are there different forms of cardiology? Yeah, for sure. And that's something that, that I guess can be confusing that we you know, can think of cardiology as one lump bucket of dealing with the heart, but there are so, or doctor who deals with the heart, but there are so many different um, permutations within that category. There are interventional cardiologists who specialize in putting in stents. There are electrophysiologists who specialize in the electrical aspects of the heart and pacemakers and defibrillators. There are preventive cardiologists, which is the camp Amen, who focus um, more on trying to prevent all those things, trying to prevent the stents, prevent the hospitalizations. Um, and preventive cardiologists tend to focus maybe a little bit more on lifestyle and um, frequently also focus on medications to try and um, like the word says, prevent cardiovascular disease. But then uh, a little bit further, I'm also a lipidologist, which is just um, a further focus on lipids, blood cholesterol, LDL, HDL, triglycerides and the like. Um, you don't have to be a cardiologist to be a certified lipidologist. Um, internal medicine docs, um, endocrinologists, and so forth can also um, become lipidologists. But me personally, I'm a preventive cardiologist um, and a lipidologist, really trying to focus on helping people improve their life from a cardiovascular risk, metabolic risk, um, neurodegenerative risk. You know, I don't want to focus just on the heart, even though I'm a cardiologist, because the same lifestyles. The same things that are um, that implicate cardiovascular risk are also involved with cancer risk, with Alzheimer's and dementia risk, um, with frailty. So it's it's really trying to improve health. I even don't like being called a preventive cardiologist. I like being called a, a health promoter, but um, that's semantics, I guess. Yeah. Um, so metabolic health, if, if someone were to use that word, uh, or phrase, what would that mean to you? Or what do you think the phrase ought to mean? Yeah, that's a great question. We've heard a lot about this term metabolic health um, now more than ever in, with, the, with the COVID pandemic because poor metabolic health is linked to increased or increased risk of severe complications from COVID-19. So well, what does that mean? What is metabolic health? Well, really what it comes down to is sort of your blood sugar and insulin um, feedback system and homeostasis in your body. And basically the, the extreme example is type two diabetes. For, for probably decades and generations, we thought metabolic health was defined as not having type two diabetes. You either had it or you didn't mm. because that is a dysregulation in the way the body handles blood sugar. 
your blood sugar gets too high and it's dangerous for your body. It's dangerous for the blood vessels in your eyes, in your kidneys, in your heart, um, and in your legs, all your blood vessels. But now we've really started, maybe in the past 20 years, we've really started to understand more about that, that it's not just type 2 diabetes. It's pre-diabetes, and even before that, this concept of insulin resistance, because it's not just the blood sugar, but it's actually the insulin. Insulin is a hormone that our body uses to regulate blood sugar. So as blood sugar goes up, insulin's supposed to go up to keep the blood sugar from going too high and bringing it back down. But what can happen is, especially in modern society, when we're eating all the time around the clock and we're eating foods that are full of carbohydrates or highly processed or high sugar that are triggering glucose and insulin rises on a regular basis, our insulin just stays high all the time and our bodies start to become resistant to it. You can think of it as, um, I like the analogy of, of your spouse you know, continually yelling at you to do something over and over and over and over and over again. You've heard it so many times, you kind of stop listening to it, right? That you're becoming resistance to that. Now, that has its own negative implications. But from a health standpoint, um, your body sort of not listening to the, these in, the, the, the talking of the insulin causes two problems. The insulin continues to rise, but then eventually the blood sugar also continues to rise. But each have an independent um, negative effect on health. So we already talked about when the blood sugar rise with type 2 diabetes, but insulin itself being high, even before the blood sugar is high, has its own negative effects of increasing blood pressure, of affecting the way the kidneys work, and then it's been linked to heart disease and cancers and neurodegenerative diseases. It's been linked to all these things. Still hard to say it directly proves it, but certainly is somewhat related in the process of them happening. So metabolic health is now um, better understood as the dual concept of insulin and blood sugar. So basically, you're metabolically healthy if both of those are low or in control. And that usually also goes along with having normal blood pressure, uh, usually having normal visceral fat, so meaning fat around your organs and fat in your abdomen, having a lower level of that. Um, you can also measure it by triglycerides and HDL, so two markers of blood cholesterol levels um, they are usually uh, normal or um, better in people who are metabolically healthy. So it's that constellation of, of factors, your glucose, your insulin, and those other factors that I mentioned, how we define metabolic health. Okay. So I think it was uh, Professor Bickman who recently said that virtually any non-infectious chronic disease is at least made worse by insulin resistance. Is that something that you would agree with or is there some nuance that I'm missing there? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to argue with that. I mean, I wouldn't say it's it's 100% caused by insulin resistance, right, but that's right, not right, what right. you said. So caused or made worse by insulin resistance. I'd have a hard time arguing with that. I think that probably would be true. I mean, um, and it's also the, the lifestyles that go along with insulin resistance are themselves um, contributors as well. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's all interrelated. And, um, you know, I guess if you can think of a silver lining of the COVID-19 pandemic, it's that we're now having more of a discussion about metabolic health and what does it mean. So if someone were to have any of these conditions or just an interest in avoiding them, um, and they go to their local 
you know, primary care physician and they get the standard panel of blood tests, for example, and physical, are they likely to receive the information that they would need that you were just alluding to as far as um, uh, indications of metabolic health? Yeah, great question. And the answer is no, um, they're most likely not. So the one, the one indication that you could get would be the lipid panel. But when people get the lipid panel, most doctors are looking at the LDL and really not paying much attention to, to the other markers. But for metabolic health, the other markers are far more important than the LDL. Mm -hmm. So the other markers being triglycerides and HDL. So you definitely want um, the triglycerides to be low and the HDL to be high. But what are the definitions of low and high? Well, according to the lab, triglycerides would be 150 and H, this is US units, um, and um, HDL would be 40 for men and 50 for women. Well, I guess you could say that's a good starting point, but I certainly wouldn't say that's optimal. If you really want optimal metabolic health, you really want those triglycerides to be below 100 is usually what I would say, and around 70 even better. And HDL is tricky because it is, um, can be fairly genetically determined in some people, um, but I like to see everybody over 50, including men. Um, so, so that's one marker that you can get um, from um, the standard blood test. And also if you're looking at blood sugar, um, that can certainly help. But we have such an over-reliance on fasting blood sugar as if that is sort of the um, most predictive marker when it really is the worst marker because the way you, they measure fasting blood sugar is you go in for your fasting test in the morning before you've eaten anything and they draw your blood sugar. And if it's high, that's a problem. But if it's below 100, they say you're fine. Your blood sugar is perfectly fine. Well, that tells you nothing about what your blood sugar is doing all day, the rest of the day when you're eating. Because you can have these huge rises and falls of your blood sugar, which can be in themselves potentially dangerous. But the fasting blood sugar tells you nothing about that. So, so that doesn't begin to scratch the surface. So a blood test like a hemoglobin A1C is a little bit better because that, that gives you a three-month average of what your blood sugar is. So not just relying on one measurement, but a three-month average. But again, remember, before that blood sugar even starts to go up, the insulin is already rising and is doing its job. It's keeping the blood sugar down. But by the insulin going higher and higher and higher and higher, you're clearly having a problem with insulin resistance and poor metabolic health even though the blood sugar doesn't show it yet. So that's another test that is not done very often, but a fasting insulin level can be very helpful because if your blood sugar is 90 and your insulin level is two, that's a very different scenario than your blood sugar being 90 and your insulin being 30, right? In that latter case, your body is working overtime to keep that blood sugar down and you're about to fall off the cliff when your blood sugar starts to go up and you're already seeing detrimental effects of that high insulin. So my general recommendation for somebody who's interested in metabolic health is one, make sure you get a hemoglobin A1C, but two, make sure you get a fasting insulin level. And then even better to take it one step further, we now have relatively easy access to these continuous glucose monitors or CGMs. Um, insurance will likely only cover them if you have um, type two diabetes or type two or type one diabetes. Um, but you could probably get them for less than a hundred bucks for a month. And it's a little device that sits on the, the back of your tricep here. And it can give you exactly what it says, a continuous monitoring of your blood sugar. So you can see if your fasting blood sugar is great at 90, but the rest of the day you're in the 160s, 
um, because you're eating and snacking and eating, you know, maybe any foods that your body doesn't react so well to, all of a sudden you have a wealth of information that your blood sugar is not as good as it looks just by a fasting blood sugar. So you can start to peel away the onion, so to speak, and peel away the layers to get to a deeper understanding. So certainly a fasting insulin, and then even better, um, a continuous glucose monitor can really give you better insight into your metabolic health. We've already been talking about carbohydrate, and we're going to talk a bit more about it. But as a ruminant nutritionist, as a forage agronomist, um, I'm used to structural and non-structural carbohydrates. I'm used to cellulose, I'm used to sugars or other uh, forms of carbohydrate and feeding animals that are basically carbohydrate-based diets. Um, but what about humans? Um, yeah. what, so maybe we should talk a little bit we were talking about why sugar levels would be high in the blood for a number of reasons, but it seems like what you're eating might be a significant source of your blood glucose load. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what you're eating, how much of it you're eating, and how often you're eating it are the three main nutritional pillars that are going to affect your metabolic health. Um, and, you know, what you're eating you know, the more carbohydrates and sugars you eat, the more it's going to affect your blood sugar. The more processed and sort of refined those are, the more it's going to affect your blood sugar. The more fiber they contain, the more natural they are usually, the less it's gonna affect your blood sugar. Those are sort of simple concepts. Um, but I mean, it's clear now from, from the literature and the science that's just growing and growing, the best nutritional intervention for controlling your blood sugar is a very low carbohydrate diet. So whether that's a ketogenic diet, you know, uh, a very low carb diet, a uh, uh, proper human diet, to, you know, mm. you can see lots of different terms floating around. But it basically means the carbohydrates that you eat um, should come from green leafy vegetables and and broccoli and cauliflower and cabbage um, and um, and spinach. And if you're eating those types of carbohydrates that are full of fiber in whole foods, um, they're going to affect your blood sugar much less than eating any other type of carbohydrate, including healthy whole grains and fruits and even root vegetables. Now, does that mean whole grains, fruits and vegetables are poison or in, and root vegetables are poison and should never be eaten? Of course not. And does it mean everybody's, in, uh, everybody's body is going to react the same to them? Of course not. And that's part of this sort of discrepancy we have because people can say, look, look at these blue zones. Look at the people, look at these areas where people live to be a hundred far more often than anywhere else. They eat a lot of whole grains. They eat a lot of root vegetables. They eat a lot of fruits. So there's no way these foods can be harmful in any way. Well, if you live that type of life, where you eat 1200 calories a day, where you probably eat two meals without snacks, where there's no such thing as fast food or taco shops or, or um, you know, convenience stores on every corner, where you're outside and, and moving your body physically all day long, then you're going to be able to handle a very different diet than people who are behind a computer eight hours a day, sitting in traffic for an hour or two hours a day, eating, 2,400 calories when their body only needs 1,600 calories, who, you know, eat at convenience stores and fast food and completely different scenarios. So the way 
the way whole grains and fruits react in one situation is not the same as it reacts in the other. So rewinding all this, basically um, the, simple, the simple answer is the fewer carbohydrates, the better when it comes to blood sugar and insulin. So if you can factor that into a healthy eating pattern where you're getting all the protein you need, where you're getting the nutrients you need, um, then that is the best way to eat for metabolic health. So there's a number of ways to go from here, but um, just you're saying the lowest, but I'm aware of some controversy, whether it's contrived or real, about what constitutes a low carbohydrate diet. And then when you yeah. see different studies and so what would somebody who's well, first of all, we should talk about dietdoctor.com as a place that I certainly send people to if they're interested in quality and free information. It's a subscription service, but there's a lot of information outside the paywall. Um, so I'll, I'll certainly will come back to Diet Doctor, but just as a guide, what would be considered a the beginning of a low carbohydrate diet? Yeah, a great question. I'm glad you brought this up. And um, I'm happy to talk about Diet Doctor all day long. But one of the things, one of my jobs at Diet Doctor is to clarify confusing headlines, nutritional headlines, health headlines. And every time I see a study that comes out that says low carb diets linked to you know, increased mortality, low carb diets, most recently linked to increased calcium score. I get out my computer and I start typing because most of these studies define low carb as 40% of your calories as carbohydrates. When, if you're eating a 2000 calorie diet, that's 200 grams of carbohydrates per day. So a liberal low carb diet, as we define it at Diet Doctor, a liberal low carb diet is 100 grams of carbs per day. A moderate low carb diet is 50 grams or less. And a strict low carb or ketogenic diet is 20 grams or less. So, so a can of Coke would be how much? Oh, well, what is that? Like 35 grams of sugar or something like that? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, I mean, you've blown your lot right there if you're on a very low carbohydrate diet. But the point being, um, Really, you, can, you shouldn't even start to consider low carb until you're at 100 grams per day. And most of these studies define it as 200 per day. But if you're talking about a ketogenic diet, which is where the evidence is for reversing type 2 diabetes um, and metabolic syndrome and having the biggest impact on weight loss, then you're at 20 grams per day. So, that's, so they're def these studies are defining low carb as more carbs in a week, you know, their daily carbs are more carbs than most low carb people would eat in a week. So it's a really mix of definitions. So someone could say, well, does it really matter? If you're comparing 200 to 300, shouldn't that difference matter? Well, yeah, it absolutely does matter because your body changes, your body's physiology changes as you lower those carbohydrates, because now you can start burning fat for energy as opposed to only burning the carbohydrates for energy. Also, if you're only eating 20 or 50 grams of carbohydrates per day, there's not a lot of room for sodas or donuts or even bread or, or pasta. But if you're eating 200 grams a day, 
And these studies don't control for the quality of those carbohydrates. Mm. Now the doors are opened and you're eat, your carbohydrates are coming from much more than just above ground vegetables and the occasional fruit and nuts. They're coming from a wide variety of carbohydrates. So you cannot make the conclusions that so many try to make that these studies show that low carb diets are dangerous because the definition is absolutely crucial. And it, it, I mean, I can, I'm on my soapbox and I can stay here all day on my soapbox. It's the, the scientific community has to get over that, that, that hurdle of how to better define low carb diets, because it's just confusing for the general population to read these studies and, and say, Oh, nope, low carb diets are dangerous. I can't do it. But if you do it the way it's supposed to be done, rather than the way these faulty studies define it, it's a completely different story. And, and one of my soapboxes is to compare and contrast animal nutrition and veterinary medicine and plant nutrition, which I had somebody just remind me, I'm not talking about eating plants, I'm talking about fertilizing plants. Um, you can do things with very controlled conditions um, it gets harder with animals and there's review to make sure that all the ethics are in place and that's entirely appropriate, but you can do things there that you'll never be able to do with human beings. Um, I, Adele at one of the events that I invited her to was in the audience when I was talking about, it's very hard to find large groups of genetically similar human beings that you can completely control for long periods of time, measure exactly what goes in and what it was, and then measure what comes out and what it was. Um, and she then spoke up loud enough for the back row to hear and then sacrifice them at the end of the study to determine body <laughs> composition. Um, it's hard right. to find volunteers for that. Um, right, right, which speaks to the quality of the evidence that we are making these broad sweeping conclusions from um, in our human evidence uh, database, which is you know weak observational trials of, of not doing anything, just observing how people live and then crunching the data and saying, well, these people ate more meat, these people ate less, okay, it must be the meat. Well, no, it's got nothing to do with that potentially because there's so many other variables or trying to control what everybody eats in a controlled setting, but then have the study last for two weeks. Mm -hmm. well, what does that tell you when we're talking about a, a diet that your body needs to adapt to? So, mm -hmm. so I you knew neither of those studies is, is really relevant to make broad sweeping conclusions. They can give you ideas mm -hmm. about further studies that need to be done, but they certainly cannot be made to then inform nutritional policy or to inform what is the best diet for people. Um, and even when I say, you know, I think low carb diets are the best diet for metabolic health, that doesn't mean they're the best diet for everybody. I think if, you, if you're having trouble with metabolic health and are concerned about metabolic health, I think that is the best place for most people to start. But there are plenty of people who will do just fine with a higher carb diet, like we talked about with the, with the blue zones. And so there isn't just one diet. Um, and to use faulty science to then try and form what should be a one diet is even a worse place to yeah. start. So oh, the, the ideas that spring to mind and then run right away. Um, we, oh, the healthy user bias. Yeah. What, what, could you say a little bit about that and explain the role that it can play in these same studies that you were just talking sure. about? Yeah, absolutely. And I, again, this is something I write a lot about at, at dietdoctor.com. Um, you look at these observational studies and 
they're, you know, they enroll people in the 80s and 90s and even early 2000s. And what was the underlying message for health? If you want to live a healthy life, whether it's your doctor, your nutritionist, your, uh, or the government, they're telling you to eat less saturated fat and eat less eggs and eat less animal products. So who were the people who were eating more saturated fat, more eggs and more animal products during that time period? On average, they tend to be people who are less concerned with their health because they are ignoring the so-called experts on their health. So that's sort of the basis of healthy user bias. Well, how do you know if that's true or not? Well, when you look at the breakdown of these observational studies, you say, okay, this group ate the most meat, this group ate the, le the least amount of meat. Well, what else was different? Well, the group that ate the most amount of meat also smoked more and exercised less. Well, it wasn't eating the meat that caused them to smoke more. They Maybe just... it was, but you don't know. Oh, well, yeah, right. No, no, that. Yes, no, exactly actually, right. You're right. The study doesn't tell you. So maybe it was. It, <laughs> scientifically, you don't know if it was eating the meat that caused them to smoke. I think we can all say that it you know, reasonably wasn't, but scientifically, you can't. Now, and smoked meat, same... on the other hand. <laughs> you get me hungry. Okay. But... And yet, but that's the same conclusion. We can conclude from that study. See, eating meat makes you smoke more. That is the same conclusion as saying eating meat leads to more heart disease. It's the exact same conclusion, the exact same faulty conclusion because the science doesn't back it up. But what it means is those people tended to be less healthy in general. And you can try to control for that statistically. You can assume Okay, if you smoke, it increases your risk by X amount. But you're you're really just guessing. You're not you're not really controlling for that. And what other markers can you not control for? I mean, how about how much they sleep? How about their their anger and how they react to things? Um, how about their stress management? How about whether they get outside and get sunlight and get fresh air? How about how they relate to other people? All these things impact your health. You can't control for that in a study, but yet. You blame it on the meat because that's a data point that you can find and that looks nice and clean and that fits a narrative that people are trying to promote. Well, and then if we, so how do they collect their intake data? Mm -hmm. um, right. what, how do they establish how much meat someone's eating? Yeah, that's another great point. So a lot of these studies, which can be 10, 15, 20 years long, they will send out a food frequency questionnaire to somebody, which can be a list of, you know, like 160 different foods. How often did you eat it? Uh, how often do you eat it a week? Or how often do you eat it a month? Or um, yeah, sometimes you do a 24 hour food recall. What'd you eat for the past 24 hours? But the point being, they can send you that uh, questionnaire once, maybe twice, or a good study three times during a 20 year period. So how accurate is that going to be? And so it's, it's actually, it depends on people's recall and it kind of asks more, what do you think you should be eating more than what are you actually eating? There are, there are studies that looked at these food frequency questionnaires and show that people really do sort of alter their answer based on what they kind of think they should be eating, right? I'm a little embarrassed that I, you know, maybe I shouldn't have been eating so much candy. So I'm going to say I ate much less candy than I really did. And I shouldn't have been drinking all that soda, I know. So instead of saying I drank, I had two sodas a day, I'll just say I had, you know, a couple a week. And um, so people actually do that. That's something that's been shown, but also just the, the faultiness of trying to remember, like three years ago, Peter, how many eggs a day did you eat? 
Um, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. Well, and and no. I've even heard. So, did you eat pizza? Okay, is that cheese? Yeah. Is that meat? Is that vegetable? Right. Is that cereal? Uh, right. Yeah. Another great thing is is the saturated fat. So picture, you know, a, a spinach salad with olive oil for the dressing and some almonds and some cheese and some nice, you know, some nice beef on there. And that's a wonderful spinach salad, uh, steak salad that is saturated fat. Now think about a big plate of spaghetti with some bolognese sauce that has sugar in the sauce and has, you know, who knows what else in the sauce. That's saturated fat, according to these studies. Those are both meat. Those are both saturated fat. They are exactly the same based on these studies. Do you think they're exactly the same in your body? Mm. Absolutely not. So, I mean, we can just keep peeling this back on how weak these studies are, how poor these studies are. And then one further factor here is to say, okay, well, how much of an impact did it have? Like, was this a dramatic change in their risk of heart disease? And we can, they use what's called a hazard ratio, mm. which is a statistical um, a statistical calculation to say how much more likely are you to have heart disease or not based on these variables. And for a lot of these trials, it's the answer is 1.2, say, okay, so 1.2, right? Well, if one is, is no difference in 1.2, okay, that could be a difference, right? Well, for perspective, smoking and cancer, the difference is 30, not 1.30, but 30. <laughs> So that puts it into perspective when we're talking about 1.2. We're talking about razor thin margins and then add to that all these other factors we've been talking about. And is that, and, di is that distinguishable from noise in their data? Yeah, it really isn't. It, it really isn't. Um, and there's, there's something called the Bradford Hill criteria. There's something called the GRADE, G-R-A-D-E criteria. These are, these are, I guess, other metrics by which to try and gauge these results to say, are they meaningful or not? And they both would pretty much conclude that these types of studies do not meaningfully impact our knowledge of what um, meat or saturated fat or you know, other food components contribute to our health in those studies. So um, we are told that there's a minimum amount of carbohydrate that we must have in our diet. Um, and yet we're talking about reducing the carbohydrate level. So how do we um, reconcile those two things? Yeah, another great misconception of nutritional science. So our body needs about 130 grams of glucose in our body. And part of, part of that is because our brains cannot run completely on ketones. Pretty much the rest of our body can use fat for fuel and ketones for fuel and does not need a drop of glucose necessarily for fuel. Our brains and our red blood cells and some other are different and need some amount of glucose. But does that mean we therefore need that amount of carbohydrates? But that has been sort of the translation that we need to eat 130 grams of carbohydrates because our brain needs that. But our body is pretty smart. I'm guessing there were some times in our evolution where we did not have access to 130 grams of carbohydrates. I say that jokingly because clearly there were. We had famine and we, there was plenty of time where all we had access to was game meat. Um, you know, it was likely cyclical and came and went. 
but our body had to survive without that carbohydrate. So our body has the ability to synthesize all the glucose mm. that we need. As long as we're getting enough fat and protein and total calories, our body does the rest and can make the rest of the glucose we need. So the exact amount of carbohydrates that is required for survival is zero. We don't have to eat a drop of carbohydrates and our body will do just fine because we have pro amount, enough proteins and fats and our body can make all the glucose we need called gluconeogenesis, making new glucose. So mm. if you hear that there is a 130 gram requirement of carbohydrates, that is false. There is zero mm. carbohydrate requirement, even though our bodies do mm. require some glucose. Now, individuals may need, require a period of adaptation to get used to not eating large amounts of carbohydrate, but once adapted, even endurance athletes are capable of performing at a high level without, um, without the excessive amounts of carbohydrates that typically are, are thought necessary for those sports. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, Zach Bitter is a, is a fantastic example who runs hundred mile races. Why? And he is, <laughs> <laughs> why? That's a deeper question. That's a better question. But um, I'm sorry, judgmental. I can't. <laughs> yeah, but no carbohydrates required. And, and in fact, I just interviewed um, Dr. Ian Lake on, on my podcast and he um, organized this zero five, what, what was it? Sorry zero five 100 so zero calories five days 100 miles he and, and eight others um ran 100 miles over five days so averaging 20 miles a day and ate nothing so not only did they not eat carbohydrates they ate nothing so that is you know, they did it as sort of an extreme example of what the body can go through um, that the body doesn't need constant fuel the body doesn't mm. need carbohydrates all the time or any type of fuel. And to kick it even further, two people had type one diabetes while they were doing it. So, I mean, that just shows that our concepts, the medical and nutritional concepts of this need for carbohydrates and this constant need for food and snacking and grazing is completely false and not backed by science. Doesn't mean it can't work for some people, but certainly doesn't mean it's the right thing for everybody. And certainly doesn't mean it's scientifically backed that it's necessary. Um, wow. It, it's going to, we're going to run out of time. I can tell. Um, so let's just, um, Is that your way of telling me I'm talking too much. No, not at all. It's me. <laughs> um, so one of the uh, arguments against eating animal source foods is the saturated fat content, which yeah. tends to be the primary source of saturated fat in certainly North American diets. Um, although that's not exclusive to animal source foods, you can get saturated fat from plant source foods. Um, and we've talked about how that isn't clearly isn't the, the hazard that people have made it out to be. Um, but touch on that again, but the, the other selling point against animal source foods was dietary cholesterol. Mm -hmm. um, so the thoughts on any evidence to suggest that dietary cholesterol is a, a clear health risk, uh, and then the saturated fat intake question. 
Yeah, so dietary cholesterol is another great one. Um, it's something that I feel like I have to write about a few times a year, at least, because these studies come out. Um, eggs being a prime example, you know, um, eggs have a fair amount of dietary cholesterol. And for a while, the official recommendation from the American Heart Association was to limit dietary cholesterol. But eventually they sort of woke up to the fact that there really isn't any evidence that eating dietary cholesterol actually causes heart disease, despite, or, or even is associated with an increased risk of heart disease, despite for decades recommending to lower it. So they sort of took that out. And, and the, the famous term now is that it's not a nutrient of concern. Dietary cholesterol is not a nutrient of concern. The reason being, eating dietary cholesterol can raise your total cholesterol in your blood. So the concern was that oh, raises your total cholesterol, must cause heart disease. But it does it by raising your HDL and mildly raising your LDL. And it hardly does it at all. I mean, in most people, there isn't much of a change. And then if you look at the studies to say, well, does that correlate with an increased risk of heart disease? Because that's what we care about, right? What we care about is, are you having heart disease? Are you having strokes? Are you dying prematurely? Not what your blood tests look like, but what does it actually mean for your health? There's no correlation there. So dietary cholesterol is not a concern um, for, um, for, I guess you can never say for everybody, but for the vast majority of the people, the, the science supports that it's not a concern. You know, there's the famous line from um, one of those documentaries that says, you know, eating an egg is the same as smoking five cigarettes or something like that. And it's just such a, such a, I guess, bastardization of science and misuse of science to try and fit your narrative. And nothing could be further from the truth there. I mean, there, there's no correlation there. Um, so th that's dietary cholesterol. And then you said to touch on saturated fat. Well, like we were saying before, the way these trials look at saturated fat, is it the big Philly cheesesteak with the huge bun? Or is it, you know, the, the ribeye steak with your cauliflower mash, you know, and those are two completely different meals, but both, both labeled as saturated fats. So th that's the observational trials. Now there actually are some randomized trials too, looking at saturated fat intake. So real quick, randomized um, gets past all those other um, sort of drawbacks to the observational trials because it takes two groups of people, or it takes one big group of people and randomly, randomly assigns them to one group or the other. You're eating more animal products and saturated fat or less. So there's no healthy user bias. You can somewhat have better control of what they're eating. Um, they're matched for all their other risk factors. And what the majority of those trials show is there's no difference in who lives or dies. Um, there's a very small difference in, in the incidence of heart disease, um, but that is related only if you eat more saturated fat and you have a significant rise in your LDL cholesterol. So how do we interpret that? If you eat saturated fat and you don't have a rise in your LDL cholesterol, there is absolutely no evidence to suggest that saturated fat is harmful for you. Does that mean if you eat saturated fat and your LDL goes up, it automatically means there's a risk for you? Well, that's where we have to understand more about these trials because these were all mixed high carbohydrate, high fat diets. So just like we were talking about before, the way you define a low carb diet, it's important to define it because your body changes, your physiology changes about the way you, um, your metabolic health responds and the way that you handle um, fats in terms of how you uh, metabolize them. So would that same hold true for a lower carb, healthier diet, 
that is high in saturated fats. We don't know, and a high LDL. We don't know the answer to that. We don't have the studies to prove that one way or the other. But is there reason to believe it could be different? There certainly is. And that's why I think um, to say across the board, everybody needs to reduce their saturated fat is not backed by science. You mentioned before time-restricted eating. Um, layman's version, what does that mean? <laughs> well, layman's version is the opposite of what we've been told to do, to eat three meals a day and snack all day long, that grazing, that somehow eating increases your metabolic rate and you have to avoid being hungry at all costs. That sort of has been, um, has been a teaching for, for decades. But instead, it's the exact opposite and saying, you know what? Instead, we should just eat one or two meals a day, most commonly two meals a day without snacking in between. Well, why would that be different? Well, because when you have constant nutrient intake, your body's reacting to it with a constant blood sugar elevation and a constant insulin elevation to try and keep that blood sugar from going too high. And remember how we started this conversation with metabolic health, that chronic elevation of insulin, your body starts to become resistant to it and the insulin just gets higher and higher and higher and starts the, uh, the windfall then of, of metabolic dysfunction. Well, what else can we do to help lower that insulin? Well, one thing is to space out the amount of time between when you eat, because if there's no food coming in, your glucose isn't going up and your insulin isn't going up. So if you can spread that out, um, your body will react favorably um, from a metabolic standpoint. Uh, it can also be very helpful to help you reduce your calorie intake. I mean, let's face it, most people eat more calories than they need. So what's a good way to help them reduce their calories? Restrict when they can eat. So you can still have maybe your lunch and your dinner, um, but you get rid of your breakfast, you get rid of your snacks. And most people, if they're doing it appropriately, can cut their caloric intake. Now, if you just make up for it by eating more during those times and binging on, on foods that are, aren't healthy for you, you can undo the benefits. And that was shown in, in a recent trial um, published by uh, Dr. Ethan Weiss, um, where some of the headlines said time-restricted eating doesn't work, period. Those were some of the headlines you got to dig a little bit deeper because the people who did the time-restricted eating actually ate more calories than the people who ate three meals a day. So, you know, in my practice, when I see patients, that's one of the things I'm checking on on a regular basis. If you're doing time-restricted eating, it doesn't mean make up for the missed meal by eating more. <laughs> it means you stick to your regular size meals and you use that as a way to lower your calories and have greater space between your calories. And then you get the double benefit. And it helps with weight loss, it helps with blood sugar, it helps with insulin, helps with lipids, uh, helps with inflammatory markers. It can help um, with a, a number of different factors, especially when combined, when the food that you are eating is lower carbohydrate foods that isn't impacting your glucose and your insulin negative, you get sort of the one-two punch there to really improve your metabolic health. I, I read and I've heard you on other uh, podcasts talk about making low-carb simple. Mm -hmm. And right, Dr. Slogan, we're there to make low carb simple. And, and I like that a lot, um, partly because I think about people who may, you know, their, their market may be Dollar General uh, or Safeway or Piggly Wiggly. And um, I, I may be leading the witness here, but I, I resist the idea that you have to pay extra for some product that you could buy 
in one of those stores. There's nothing wrong with those stores. It's just to name some uh, more common stores, or you don't necessarily need a bunch of supplements. You don't need, um, you know, th th there are books by Brett Sure that might be really essential, but uh, <laughs> the, 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 the information that's available to make things simple. So if you, if, if I were to present to you as a patient and, you know, here I am and I've got, you know, abdominal obesity and my HDL is low and my triglycerides are high and my fasting glucose is high, you know, we've determined that I'm a candidate for this um, right. lifestyle intervention. Um, okay. What would be sort of rather than having me drink from the fire hose of information that we're used to, um, what would be first step? What would be second step sort of things? Yeah. Well, first step is usually getting an idea of what your, your diet is now to see what needs to be cut out. And it's, in, it's amazing how cultural influences are so important there. You know, if you're, um, if you prefer Mexican food, then, it, you know, we're going to have to handle the, the tortillas and the rice and the beans. If you like Indian food, it's going to be the non bread and that, you know, and if you're Italian, is if you prefer Italian, it's going to be the pastas. And so it's trying to, to find the biggest offenders, find a way to reduce them and then what to substitute. Now, if people want to jump into the deep end, then it's simple. I mean, it, then it's really simple. You say you can eat any above ground vegetable that you want and you add all the natural, um, uh, animal products and fats to that that you want and go. I mean, that's sort of like simple um, in terms of advice, but maybe a little bit harder for the transition. Um, but, but I think for those people who want to tiptoe in a little bit, it's finding the biggest offenders, reducing them, and then substituting them for real whole foods. Make sure it came from the ground, make sure it came from an animal and not from a, a, a factory or a plant and it wasn't processed and it's not in a box or a bag unless it's like a bag of spinach or something like that. Um, and, and those are the great places to start. It doesn't have to be all organic. It doesn't all have to be grass fed and, and you know, pasture raised. And if that's important to you and you can afford it, go for it. If you can't, don't let it be a barrier. Find what's on sale at your local grocer. If, you know, if, um, if the, the turkey is on sale or the chicken thighs are on sale this week, then this week you're having chicken thighs. You know, if the New York Strip goes on sale next week, then next week it's it's New York Strip. You can you can alter your diet based on that. And then fortunately, the cauliflower, the broccoli, um, the green beans, the spinach, those usually aren't very expensive to begin with. Um, so you can add those as well. And then the butter and olive oil um, and you know, avocados can be a little pricey in, in some places, but uh, those are a great addition. Um, so it's, it's sort of starting with those basics, you know, that's the, that's the baseline and then finding the meals you like. So again, at Diet Doctor, we have a thousand recipes, um, and we have budget-friendly recipes. We have budget-friendly guides. Uh, we want to give this information to people in as simple of a way possible to, to make it work for you. Um, but everybody's different in terms of who cooks, how often they cook, do you, you know, eat out, do you eat at your desk? Um, so it's trying to make it fit into your lifestyle um, as best you can. And uh, again, some of these stores that I mentioned in some of these smaller communities, your access to fresh vegetables might be limited, but frozen mm -hmm. is available. And if, sure. 
and and some of them I'm amazed in the time that I've been on this journey how many products are now available that weren't just a few years ago. Um, riced cauliflower, for example, I no yeah. longer have to make a mess in the kitchen. I can have a, <laughs> you know, I'm all for that. Um, so you mentioned dietdoctor.com um, again and. It's, it's, again, something that I have no reservation in, in pointing people toward in terms of finding information. I mean, I would give everybody a copy of Good Calories, Bad Calories if I could, but they're not going to read it. Um, most. Um, there, there are those of us, yourself, perhaps, certainly me, who read it um, a couple times. Um, but dietdoctor.com is a place for people to go, as you said, to find recipes, to find articles, to find documentaries. Um, could you describe that? Just, uh, what is it? How, um, how does it run? Uh, who's behind it? How does it work as a business? Yeah, Those sorts absolutely. of things. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so it was founded by Dr. Andres Einfeld, who was, was a Swedish, um, primary care doctor, and he um, started to believe in the low-carb way of living and started as a blog in Swedish and has grown now to being the largest and most reputable worldwide site for, for low-carb nutrition and health. Um, and it is a predominantly free site. I mean, we have um, guides and news posts um, and podcasts um, and so much more information and, and our recipes. Uh, the vast majority of which is all free so that you can go get this information and, and start yourself on this journey. Um, and then one of the things about us, we do not want to sell any ads or any products or promote anything because we want to keep as objective as possible. And, um, you know, once you start selling things, it's going to start clouding your judgment. So we want to stay as far away from that as possible. Um, so, but we do have a subscription service um, where for you know, a low monthly fee, you get access to what's behind the paywall, which is the meal plans, the shopping lists, um, and some of the, the other videos. Um, but to be honest, the majority of it is free. It's for those people who want the next level um, to join as, as a, a Diet Doctor Plus member. Um, and we're coming out with a, a personalized meal plan, which is going to be much more geared towards the individual, depending on your, you know, your height um, and your goals and what um, how physically active you are and what your baseline medical condition is. So really to get you started on uh, the nutrition path that would sort of be best for you and then to be able to adapt it as you go to really find out what works for you. Because there isn't, it's not a one size fits all and we really wanna to, to promote that as much as possible. Um, so that, that's sort of the basics of Diet Doctor. And you know, of course we've got a YouTube channel and really trying to, to hit people with as much information as we can so they can pick and choose the things that are gonna work best for them, that's gonna stick for them. And we also have another side that's trying to educate clinicians. So not just the average everyday person, but your doctor, your nutritionist, your health coach, because let's face it, I mean, not everybody understands, even you know, well-meaning, well-educated doctors don't understand the basics of low-carb nutrition and how it can benefit metabolic health and health in general. So we're trying to educate them as well. Um, so it's sort of that, that two-pronged approach to make low-carb simple for everybody. Excellent. And for everybody. That's mm -hmm. um, what we're trying to achieve. So uh, in the closing minutes, um, what does Brett like to eat these days? 
Well, you know, what's interesting is I, I was talking to my kids about this the other day and I could have steak and eggs and broccoli and cauliflower every day, every meal for the rest of my life. But I could also have, you know, salmon and spinach with butter and olive oil um, and almonds. And, uh, you know, I could have that every day for the rest of my life too, probably. Mm. <laughs> I'm not a guy who needs real complex foods. I like to keep it simple. So um, I usually eat twice a day and it, it's almost always a fair amount of above ground vegetables, you know, spinach, broccoli, cauliflower, green beans, and some sort of uh, animal food. So whether it's salmon or steak, eggs, uh, chicken thighs, combination of those. Um, I'm a big believer in extra virgin olive oil, um, big believer in, in nuts and almonds and macadamias and pecans. And I think that's just the, the best combination um, for me. Uh, I think that's what works, works best for me. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the simple version of what I like to eat. Excellent. Um, so any closing thoughts or things that you think didn't get enough attention or you'd like some attention in the future on? Yeah. I mean, I think the, I think the biggest thing from my standpoint is the, um, the negative connotations to a keto diet that, that doctors or nutritionists are immediately resistant to because of the word keto. Um, but yet if you said, I'm gonna eat a whole foods diet with uh, plenty of above ground vegetables and nuts and seeds and making sure I'm getting adequate protein and healthy fats, they'd be like, sure, sounds great. But you can make that, a, that is a keto diet and a version of a keto diet, and, but it can be lots of other things too. So I guess it, it, the take home is there, there is resistance out there to eating this way, but a lot of it has to do with people's preconceived notions of what this, this diet means. And again, it's not one diet, but it's more the concept of what foods you need, what foods don't you need, what foods will benefit your health and what foods won't benefit your health and what part of your health are you talking about? So right. it's more of the concepts. Um, I hope that's what people can take away from this to, to kind of understand it a little bit better. Uh, I, again, I think it was Adele that gave me the idea, and I'm sure it was, um, that we should focus on uh, a, a acquiring adequate essential nutrition. And right. we should maintain or restore metabolic health. Right. And however yeah. a per person chooses to do that based on their circumstances, their resources, their background. Right. Um, now, I know that there are major conversations that have to occur under each one of those buckets. But if, if, if you find a way to express it that way, who's going to argue with you? Um, right. uh, to your point, about we have to be, we have to be open that we are emotional human beings with feelings and cravings. No, so I'm not. We can't. <laughs> what do you mean Sorry, by some that? Some of us, some of us. <laughs> um, so we, but meaning food has to address that as well. Right. And that's, yeah. um, if, if we don't like it, we're not going to eat it. If we can't sustain it, if we're always hungry and always thinking about food, it's not going to work no matter what the science and the test tubes and the animal studies say. Right. And so, again, a conversation with Frederick Leroy about the cultural aspect of food. You know, we're not just putting a scoop of protein on the plate. 
we're yeah. we're eating food that contains these as well as the cultural history and background and you know the the favorite recipe from childhood and all those things of course the other side that could be problematic is if we're using food as a means to escape some kind of present pressure or uh, unpleasant circumstance um, and regardless of your diet, if that's what food is to you, then right. we, we probably need to address something other than macros at that point. Um, Excellent point. Um, so, um, thank you so much for your time. I, I, yeah, give, my pleasure, Peter. Thank you. Given just the uh, re reacting to crazy news stories, that would be a double time full job. Um, and yet you're wearing many other hats. So I really appreciate you taking the time to help me get this endeavor launched. And I look forward to the next time that we can sit around a table and enjoy some fermented plant product. That would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. I look forward to that as well. Thanks, Peter. Thank you very much.